Welcome to this episode of Woman to Woman podcast series. Our guest today is Julie Morgan Stern. She's one of the leading experts on organization, business productivity and time management. The author of 6 best-selling books, a consultant to large corporations and a sought-after speaker, Morgan Stern has appeared on Oprah, The Today Show and NPR's Fresh Air and has helped thousands of people transform their homes, businesses and attitudes about every kind of clutter. The New York City-based Julie Morgan Stern Enterprises has been successfully in business for over 30 years. Hi Julie, welcome to our podcast series. We're so excited to have you with us today. Now I'm glad to be here with you, Divya. Looking forward to it. So you are the best-selling New York author and you have some amazing books out there. So definitely our audience are really curious to see how you got there so let's let's begin with how you got started with this business how did you get into the book writing piece of it yeah so i started the business believe it or not like 33 years ago which is remarkable to me because it always feels like it could have been you know 3 or 5 years ago uh but i started uh the business i uh used to be a really disorganized person growing up and i always craved order and i did not know how to make it happen and then when i became a parent i learned quickly if i didn't get my act together my child would probably never make it to kindergarten uh or out the door for a walk so i learned the skills and then when i got divorced i thought i need a business that i can maybe start working from home because i was a single parent and i decided I think other people could really use the help that I needed. So I started a business to tame the chaos in people's lives so that they were free to make their unique contribution. And that mission of the business comes from my belief that a every human being and every company is a unique individual and um being disorganized with your space with your time teams it can hold you back from from making your unique contribution so i work in the medium of systems for space time and teams and and free people to do what they do best that's that's an incredible thing because i think people do need that and once you see the value of it you can never get out of that mode so how about the books when did the books come into picture so i was probably in business for maybe 8 years let's see 1989 Yeah, 9 years and um I used to go I spoke a lot. I really believed that um people needed to hear the message that you can be organized and be yourself. You can organize your time and you don't have to fit yourself into a box. That there's like an inside out approach and I was out there talking everywhere. And I used to go to bookstores when I didn't have a book and I would tell them I will do a talk on organizing or time management. You collect all the books that you sell on that topic, put them on a display and you'll sell the books. So I was going everywhere speaking the gospel of organizing a time management and a publisher got in touch with me and said we see you everywhere. Have you written a book? Would you like to write a book? Are you interested in writing a book with us? And I was like Oh my god, yes, 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 yes. And that was Henry Holt Publishers. And the uh editor, I met with the editor and they cultivated him. They said we want you to write a book. So that's how it started. And I started with the first book, Organizing from the Inside Out, to share my principles and philosophy and 
that book came out and it was became a New York Times bestseller. It just got so much attention because I think people really relate to not having a cookie cutter process that system that everybody has to follow that you can be yourself and everything needs to be custom designed. So that did well. And then that's Holt said, do another book. You only had one chapter on time management in that first book. Can you do a whole book on that? So I did my second book, Time Management from the Inside Out. And then they wanted a book for students, which I co-authored with my daughter. And then that led to a workplace productivity book. And that led to how do you manage change? And I did a book on change through decluttering. And then I most recently, my most recent book is really geared to the parents community. Uh, because one of the things that I found through all my many years is of, of serving clients and audiences is that the parenting years are the most time-stretched years of a human's life. And everybody struggles with time management. Students struggle, retirees struggle, we all struggle. But parents are completely unprepared <laughs> for the juggling act. And there's never been a manual like there's no time management brochures handed out in maternity wards with every baby that's born, for example. I'm like, where's the time management brochure? So after many years, I decided to write a book specifically geared to how, what is the manual for balancing your time? So your kids get what they need. You don't lose who you are and you can still, if you want to work, really be a major contributor. So that's my most recent book, Time to parent. It's incredible that you actually wrote a book with your daughter as well. And yeah. that kind of brings the perspective of that generation. So that's talking about your daughter, right? So when yeah. she was young is when you were trying to establish your business, you were really getting into it, as you said, you know, presenting everywhere. Yeah. How do you manage that, you know, that whole raising the kid while trying to establish yourself that couldn't have been easy? It wasn't easy. <laughs> but the tr here's the deal. I was a theater person when my daughter was born. And so for the first three years of her life, I had her on my hip in the theater. I mean, she was with me at all times. And then I would hand her over to her dad at night when I would go off to rehearse at night. Like she always had a parent with her. When I got divorced, it became really, really hard. And because she was three and I figured if I'm in the theater at night and she's in school during the day, she's, she's going to never see me. And that was no good. So what I did was I started my business from home in the corner of my bedroom. I thought in the beginning that I could, cause I did not have a lot of money. I mean, I, like I left that marriage with zero, <laughs> no support. And I was on my own. Uh, financially. And um, so I thought I could like work from home and take care of my kid. Any parent from the last year who's experienced during COVID remote work and remote learning, it's a disaster. You can't, it drives you crazy. You're trying to like do three things at one time. So I learned pretty quickly. That's not going to work. Working from home doesn't mean I don't need a babysitter. And I got a babysitter who would come in and occupy my daughter while I was working from home. And that made a huge difference. As the world is opening up, now people can start reconsidering that, right? And kids are going back to school, so that's a big help. 
and I had a babysitter there, whether I was working, working at home or I was going out to a client. And that gave me the leverage. I also really had an incredible community of other moms and dads and raised my daughter in a village. And like, sometimes she would go to this person's house or the kids would come to my house. And that community really saved me as a single working mom. I could not have done it without that. And it was about five families. They're still friends to this day. So how did you get to know these people though? Was it because their kids were same age as your kids? Like how, how do you build this community for somebody new who's trying to juggle this? Where yeah. do you look for these kind of supportive families? So again, we have to put this in context of like the pre and post COVID world where people are able to go to schools or go to community centers, et cetera. So I met this, this group of, of families at my daughter's school and I started to go simply started to go to like parent teacher night at like the parent conferences or something like these PTA meetings which I wasn't really interested in <laughs> being at PTA meetings to tell you the truth I had like zero interest I was a single working parent I was like oh my god I don't really have much interest in this but I did it because I was told that it was good for my daughter to see me get involved in her schooling. So I did it for that purpose. What I didn't anticipate was I was going to meet these other wonderful parents. So then I met one and then I met another and then they were already a sort of a club. They had formed their own little circle and I kind of got to get tapped into that circle. And I'll never forget like meeting them and then finding out that circle was a little wider and just being embraced by this group of families. And we spent every holiday together as like all the five families and all the kids, we shared and rotated who's walking the kids to school, who's taking care of them after school. It was just incredible. And I learned how to be a good parent by watching these other parents. So that support, I can't emphasize it enough. We need community. And I really hope that it's the first thing everybody goes out to rebuild coming out of this Corona time, which really isolated parents and has put them in just the worst circumstances of isolation. You need your peeps. You do, you do. You, you mentioned something very interesting and I've been thinking about it and I am so interested for you to speak on this. The last time we spoke about COVID, you mentioned this uh, chain journal that you had started and you were encouraging everybody you worked with to start one. So can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So COVID was a sudden, abrupt, unprecedented, you know, global trauma that we have all gone through. And it came up suddenly. It's practically surreal. It was filled with loss and fear and innovation and change and discovery and self-reflection and all this stuff. But it's been very hard to navigate. And at each stage, I have found the ambiguity. People, people are tired. They've lost a little sense of purpose and focus because the uncertainty is so difficult. So as we've been kind of on that up to the one year mark and moving beyond, what I, what I thought to myself and also in reflection with a lot of clients who are bringing this up is like, how do you take control in a time of such uncertainty? And what do you do with the last year? Do you just try to ignore it and as though life was on pause and then you're going to go back to the way things were? People don't really want to do that. 
So it's how do you harness the lessons? And this has been a year of extraordinary change. So I started a change journal, which is just to stop at this moment and reflect on what did you discover about yourself in the last year that you had no idea you were capable of, that you valued, that you could do. Things like how innovative you got, things of how resilient you became, things like I really actually like being at home or I really hate being at home. (laughs) What did you discover about yourself that you can, and what of, of this, how did you change to write it down before it disappears in your rear view mirror and then harvest that? When what pieces of change do I want to bring forward into the next chapter? Like I discovered these cool things and I changed in these cool ways and I want to hold on to them and bring them forward. So that's part of the change journals. How did I change and what do I want to embrace and bring forward? Uh, what do I want to leave behind? What do I want to add in? And how am I changing still? Because we're still changing. And I think by recognizing it, by documenting it, by thinking it about it and reflecting on it, we can do something very positive. We can get the most out of this. It's a remarkable time in history, but what can we harvest from it? It was a very emotional time. We all went through hope. We went through grief. A lot of us went through loss. So there's something to your point, if we don't capture it now, in a year or so, all of those emotions kind of just fall by the wayside. You don't remember them. Yeah, you don't remember them. You don't process them fully. I think that's one of the things about like traumatic events is we just sort of react and we cope in the moment. But I think the brain is built to forget trauma and the memory receptors. That's the way the brain works is that when you're kind of under fight or flight, the memory receptors in the uh, back of your brain, they recede primitive instincts so that you're not afraid to like keep going on. So we don't want to just forget, right? We want to process and we want to take the best lessons and make them a part of our lives as we move forward. Even all the social awareness, right? I mean, there was so much like the whole Black Lives Matter movement that emerged in because everybody was home and everybody was watching things and there was a heightened accelerated awareness of these issues in our society, which sort of we're aware of, and then we forget about, we're aware of, and we ignore where, you know, they come and they go and they come and they go like, boom, there they were. And people really engaged. Well, that kind of social activism and like, we're going to tackle these problems that we have in our society. If you got fired up about that, don't let that disappear on your rear view mirror either. Bring that forward. How do you, what do you want to bring forward to build into your, who you are as a human and your practices and behavior now? It's powerful if we uh, take charge and that we can control. So any incidences that you would much rather forget, but then you decided, no, let's not forget, bring them forward. And what do I learn? And you incorporated that in your life going forward. No matter what I go through in my life, I try to always harvest the lessons. I think that's kind of the way I have lived my life. And I have had, I mean, I had hardships when I was a kid and, you know, you try to like just move forward and put those away or behind you. But, you know, even the most adverse things that you go through as a human, they actually make you, can make you 
much more empathetic to others, much more relatable. They teach you things. So everything you go through, I think you can pull something really positive from it and it builds you, builds your strength. And were there any people who didn't believe in you along this journey at different points of time? First of all, truthfully, when I think the person who, who, who doubted me most was always me, not other people. <laughs> I think that's very often true. You're like, you have this great idea for this business, but then you're like, can I really do it? I don't know. So I took really a lot of strength and encouragement from people who believed in my idea and reflected back, that is a great idea, go for it. And sometimes when you're trying to do something new, untested, untried, I mean, I left the theater and started a business. I was like, what do I know about business? I don't know anything. And I went to the Small Business Administration to the SCORE office, Service Corps of Retired Executives. Mm -hmm. And there were some counselors there who I just, you know, randomly you just show up and whoever comes out, your number, they pull your ticket and you're next. It's random. But I ended up meeting a couple of amazing uh, executives who, who so believed in what I was doing, they just really rallied around me and encouraged me. So those were great. Um, at one point, in, once I had started the business, I went and spoke to a group of all men and uh, that were like, honestly, it was like somewhere in Ohio in some kind of clubby, I don't know, these businessmen. And I was a woman I had, I didn't see this coming, but I was talking and these guys were like, what do you know about anything? What can you tell me about business? And I just could not believe like everybody loved my stuff. These guys, this room was unmovable. They were just like, what do you young woman know about anything to teach me? And I was like, wow, that was really, really tough. It was like one of the worst speeches I ever speech experience. It was the longest hour in the world. It felt like three days long. I was like five minutes in. I was like, please, what are we done yet? Can I get off stage? I am failing. I mean, I couldn't get a smile, a laugh, a nod, nothing. Arms crossed, you know. Oh my God, I I I could not wait to get out of there. It was really awful. The next time I was gonna speak, then I was like, oh my God, maybe this is like it's like. If you're speaking to all women, women speaking to women, there's some great energy in the room. Women speaking to a mixed group, fine. This like all male audience that was like, man, I don't know if I ever want to do that again. Like that's maybe I just need to be on the lookout. So the next time that I got booked, because I was a speaker. So like, you're not going to sit there and start filtering like, is this an all male group? I'm not doing it. So the next time I got booked and it turned out, I and I started to ask the gender mix just so that I could tailor my comments. And it was gonna be all male. And I was so nervous because of this trauma. And I was getting my nails done. I was traveling and wherever it was, I was getting my nails done. And I was just chit-chatting with the manicurist. She said, so was, she said, what are you in town? I, do you live here? I was like, no, I'm in town to do a speech. Oh, and then we were just chatting. So I told her about my experience. I was like, I'm really nervous about this because it's gonna be an all male audience again. The last time I did this, I bombed. <laughs> And she said, wear red, put, this was the advice of a manicurist, wear something red. And I said, why? And she said, for some reason, she read that males respond to red as a power color. And she said, you don't even need to wear it on the outside. It could be red underwear. 
only you know, but it's gonna. And so I was like, I'll take any advice at this point. <laughs> so I went out and I bought something red. And I actually think it was a, more an undergarment or something. I don't know. I don't remember what it was, but I wore red and I killed it. I knocked it out of the park. And I, you know, it was just, I think it was probably a psychological thing for me more than anything else. Uh, but yes, now I can speak to an all male audience and hold the entire room in the palm of my hand. So that's a big victory. The last time I was asking you, you know, were there instances where you felt you weren't being heard? And you talked a little bit about uh, your school, your theater grad program. So this was when I was in grad school, I was in the theater and I went to a graduate program as a directing student. And it was in Chicago. And my first week that I was there, I was in the bathroom, like washing my hands or whatever. And like these women students sort of came in and they happened to be there, but they kind of cornered me and they were like, listen, this is a very male biased school. Men get all the favor, women are treated. And I was like, come on, that's just... I, I was such an anti-feminist. And when I say that, I just didn't get feminism at that time. And I thought it's just sort of combative and you're always looking for trouble and like, just ignore all that stuff. Just you be your best self. And all of that is just hooey. So I was like, whatever, fine, fine. I just didn't believe in it at all. And, and I always felt like if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, then it didn't make a sound. If somebody's going to judge you as a woman and you don't receive that message, it didn't exist. That's the way I saw it. Don't focus on that. That was my first year. In my third year in that school, I saw what they were talking about. It took me three years to see it, but it was so vivid. It blew my mind. And what happened was as a directing student, you always had to do these sort of showcases and you would be given an assignment to do a directing project, a scene or something like that. And it always had a focus. And then the faculty would review you. You would show your work and the faculty would then review it. And I, um, I was given the assignment to, it was called Create the Environment. And I did a scene from Street Scene by Elmer Rice. Anybody listening who knows that play, it took place in like New York City tenements in the like early 1900s. And it was like the hottest day of the year in a dirty tenement, like building where it's all crowded in New York. And I had to create that as a director in a classroom with fluorescent lights and convince everybody that it was 102 degrees, et cetera. And I did an amazing job. And I had John C. Riley, who's a very famous actor now. He was, he was my star in that. And he was incredible then. So we did that. I was so proud of it. And then also that day was Jimmy. I won't say the last name. Sorry, Jimmy. He was a graduate male directing student. And he was doing his showcase. We were the only two showing. My showcase goes up and these faculty... <laughs> We did an incredible job. The actors did an incredible job. You were sweating while you were watching them in an air-conditioned room. You were sweating. It was amazing. They tore that scene to shreds. They never acknowledged any of the achievements on the assignment. They didn't talk about environment. They started talking about it. Was they just tore the thing to shreds? Then Jimmy's. I was like, really? Wow. That I think we did pretty good. You didn't even talk about the assignment. 
then then Jimmy's went up and Jimmy's was good. But the faculty then said, Jimmy, that was amazing. And they apologized to him for any negative feedback that they gave him. They were like, you know, it was great. It was brilliant. It was wonderful. If I was really forced to come up with any constructive criticism, and let me just tell you, Jimmy, I would have probably made the same mistake, but just, you know, as an exercise in thought, you maybe could have gone like one millimeter longer in that beat, but I would have made the same mistake, really. And it was, the contrast was remarkable to me. And I was like, that was what those women were trying to warn me. No matter what you do, you're going to get knocked down. And no matter what the guys do, they're going to be lifted up. You know, say la vie, bye-bye, you know? I was there for what I was there for. And once I recognized that, I just used myself as the rudder. What am I here to get out of this program? I wanted directing experience. I wanted a resume built. And I just did not look for feedback from those faculty anymore. As a student, it's hard to question the authority at that point, right? But looking back today, knowing who you are today, what would you say back to them? You know, that's a really good question. I think what I would say is just use yourself as your guide. You decide what you're here for, and which is really ultimately what I did. And don't look for the validation outside yourself. Not And, and you can't give credibility to people who don't really earn it. Didn't really hurt me. It was like, what? That's ridiculous. Like that is just ridiculous. It didn't harm me at all. It just was sort of astonishing. But what I do think as I reflect on it today, the lesson is, because we can all live this today, there are hidden biases everywhere. And particularly as a woman, certainly as a person of color, that they're invisible biases that don't even make sense. And that you very often question yourself if you're unable to move forward on something. You're like, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? Why am I not progressing? The answer is not just what are you doing wrong? It's like, how is this system rigged? And if it is, what is it that I want to get to? And I need a different path because I'm going to work around this system. I'm not going to keep looking for the system to get me where I want to go. I have to work around it and eyes wide open and don't take your eye off the ball. Don't let anybody stop you from doing what you want to do. Just be clever. And do you ever see um, women making certain kinds of mistakes repeatedly? The only thing that I would say in the corporate, in the business setting, one pattern that I have seen that can, I think women have to be very cautious about. I read is, is that women, and there's a study that, that showed this, that the difference between male and female decision-making is that when a big decision needs to be made, women tend to first try to evaluate how is the decision that's about to be made or needs to be made going to affect all the people around. Women go to like, how's this going to impact people? And men go straight for, we need to make a decision and just move and we'll deal with any fallout on people later. So men make faster decisions because they're not factoring in the impact around them. They're like, what's the business bottom line? It's a very objective, cool truth. It's about the money. It's about the profit. It's about the vision or mission. But 
devil be damned what happens to the people around we can always fix whatever gets broken afterwards that's their theory it's not that they don't care that's not their leading decision and they'll fix it later women tend to look and factor that into the decision which i think in a boardroom it makes men think women are indecisive they're not indecisive they're just going a different path to the decision and so don't don't let men rush you speak up and say, wait a minute, we have to factor both the profit and the people. Like, don't be afraid to throw in, don't doubt your process or let anybody say you're indecisive. You're just, it's a different order of evaluation than men. So you can stand your ground better if you just recognize that's just the way the two brains work and stand up for yourself. You have a good perspective on this. Um, Did you seek out any mentors? Oh, yeah. I've had a lot of mentors. So I had my two mentors, Harry Lowenstein and Erwin Copeland at Small Business Administration. They were my mentors and angels in the beginning. Um, I've had mentors within my own industry in the organizing industry. There was a woman named Paulette Ensign very early on and Barbara Hempel, who were kind of pioneers in my industry that I met and they mentored me in the field. Um, and um And then I've had mentors like my agent, Joni Evans, has been an incredible mentor to me my whole professional career. And then I think everyone I meet, I consider a mentor because everybody has figured something out. Like everybody has things they have figured out and you can learn from everybody that you meet, everybody. That is true though. Everybody has a unique perspective, something to offer. And we definitely learn. By the way, I learned so much from your productivity tips. Oh, I, I love those. But if you had to like, you know, rate the top three that you absolutely can swear by and you live by it, what would be those three productivity tips? I would say the top three at this moment that I would throw a net around are one, end every single day by planning the next day plus two, tomorrow plus two. Don't wait until the morning to look at your calendar, to look at your to-do list, to figure out what you're, what you're going to do that day. Do it at the end of the day before when your head is clear and you have some distance and you can mentally prepare and physically prepare for your next day. And then look two days beyond that. And the reason why I say the plus two is no day goes exactly as planned. There's always surprises. There's opportunities. There's things that come up. And if you're only looking one day at a time, you don't have enough information to deal with the surprises that come at you intelligently in context. So if you have three days, when a surprise comes, you're like, do I have space to, do I have wiggle room between today and tomorrow to like take this on and do this? Or you can really maneuver if you have a three-day view. That is tip number one. It really, really helps you stay focused and move toward your goals and, and be efficient every day. The second one I would say is fight and wrestle with and continuously work to break your screen addiction because our screen addiction, always being on our phones, always being on social media, always checking email, it really clutters up our day and it steals time and it steals brain power and it steals our ability to focus and be present. And when we are not, when we are focused and present, in anything that we do, we get 10 times more out of every moment than if we're in a moment and we're otherwise distracted. 
half an hour, 20 minutes fully focused, you can get so much done, more done than in two hours when you're paying that, when you're distracted. So you're more efficient when you're present. Presence is very powerful. And the third tip, top productivity tip, is that self-care is the oxygen in your entire system. And no matter what stage or phase of life, you need a minimum of two daily personal anchors that are your you time. And again, 20 minutes or less, they don't have to be big blocks of time that are you doing something that fuels you, physical health, you know, listening to music, doing things that bring you joy and relaxation and renewal. And they need to be built into the fabric of every day, not only when you're burnt out and then you take a week or a weekend off and then you go back to the grindstone. Really, really helpful. Those are amazing tips. Thank you for that. Just thinking about, right, you are an incredible individual. I've had a couple of conversations with you every time I walk away with something unique and I'm like, oh my God, she does that too. One of those things was that you were a dancer. Oh yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that. I mean, to me still to this day, like music just transports me and movement transports me. And ever since I was a very young kid, I just, I love to dance and I dance like everything. Like when I was growing up, I did like international folk dance. And I used to, in Philadelphia, there was, we would do like Greek dancing on the top of the art museum steps where Rocky ran up, you know, that every summer we do that all summer long. In New York, I go swing dancing in Lincoln Center under the stars every summer. Um, I was a dancer. I studied ballet. I, st- I performed for many years. Um, there is something about music of and global music. Like I love every form of music. It just moves through my veins and I'm just like happy. And people say when they see me speak, they're like, oh, were you a da- are you a dancer? Because... To me, everything is a movement. Everything is movement, you know, and like a speech is movement. There's texture to it. There's rhythm to it. There's, there's a beginning and a middle and some movement and an ending. Organizing somebody is a dance. We start here in this chaos and we dance together and then we get order at the end. So before we close up for today, any final advice? It's about finding something that you're truly passionate about. I believe that I have been successful in my field, which was not theater. Like I left the theater. That was very hard to do, but I had to be a single parent. I had to make money, had to start a business, but I chose organizing because I understood that from the inside out. I, and if you are building something, if you understand your customer, if you, it's like you are your customer, you then can tune in, you know what to build, you know how to listen, you know how to fix things, you can find your customers because you understand them. You can come up with the right solutions because you really understand them. That to me has been my approach. And I've always thought, built my business as though I was the consumer and it seems to work. And I know the consumer wants something that works. It's effective, don't waste my time with something that doesn't work. They want quality and they want efficiency. So that's what I do. And and I think if you do that, it's about really following. I know it sounds a little trite, but following your passion or fix a problem in the world that you really understand, you will be so driven 
nothing will knock you back great piece of advice thank you so much julie for your time today this was so much fun and we learned so much really loved it thank you thank you divya bye bye